whatever needs to be defeated in your life, whatever you need to face in your life today, this is the truth that you sing over it. One last time. I lift my eyes up, my help comes from the Lord. Lord God, we truly declare this today. Lord, it's not something, as I said in the early service, that is mandated that, okay, we sang the song, now we need to say this. It's not some type of order or some type of cliche or rhetoric that we're saying. God, this is, this is truth. And Lord, I speak this because it is truth. Lord, whatever holds us in bondage, whatever we face, whatever is in our mind that we are doubting or struggling with, Lord, whatever decisions may be in our future, Lord, we may be in the midst of a joy-filled time where, Lord, your presence is mighty in our life. And, Lord, even then, we declare that we lift our eyes up because, Lord, we recognize that whether it be joy or sadness, difficulty or struggle, chaos, uncertainty, it will never diminish the fact that you are God and that you sent your son Jesus and at his name and by his name, all things can be restored. All things can be healed. Future can become clear. So, Lord, I thank you for that today. And we just declare that and believe it to be true. We ask you to bless Pastor Chris as he speaks to us. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, let us look deeply and hear your word and apply it as your Holy Spirit leads us. And we'll give you glory because you are good and you are God and you are faithful. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray and declare. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Let's open our Bibles. Everybody say word. 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 Had a couple of donuts in between services, so you're not, you have no idea what you're about to get. A couple of cookies, too. It's awesome. Okay, let me first start off with this statement. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power to save and power to heal. There is power to change our identity and elevate us above the mediocrity and the emptiness, the repetitious nature of a life lived shackled to sin and circumstances. There is power in the name of Jesus to set us free. Free from damaging psychology and deadly sin cycles. And set us free from a life and destiny of destruction. There is power in the name of Jesus. As we turn our attention back to the book of Acts, shifting now our focus from the earliest picture of Christ-centered community, one of the, the clearest we see in the scriptures of the early church, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, as we set out to answer the question, what do you do when 3,000 people show up? And that might seem like a staggering amount of people. We gather here a few hundred every Sunday at Firewheel. My prayer has begun to shift. I'm asking God now for the 2%. I will often pray for the local community. But as I started to think through the local community, if this is the center of a circle and the radius goes out five miles, there are 150,000 people. 
the largest demographic of that 150,000 people are non-churched people. We are told that that is the fastest growing and largest demographic in our culture today. That tells me there is a massive group of people we have the privilege of reaching. And as a ministry, as we operate to reach the unchurched, dechurched, and badly churched, it just so happens that's the majority of the people that are, make up that 150,000. And so my prayer is now, God, please let us reach the 2%. 2% is 3,000 people. What would we do if 3,000 people showed up? Well, I, I would argue we do the exact same thing that the early church did. Can you all remember the two words from last week that describe that Christ-centered community? They were what together? They were devoted together. That's absolutely right. Good job. Gold star, thumbs up, or 10 points, however you want to apply to your account. That was a great answer. They're devoted together. They were devoted to Christ-centered community. They were devoted to the scriptures. They were devoted to the fellowship. Breaking bread together in the prayers, they were devoted to Christ, but they were also devoted to one another. And flowing from that Christ-centered devotion to Christ and one another flowed incredible power. Incredible culture-shifting power. In fact, that is where the camera is now going to pan out, and we're going to focus in on a couple of apostles. And we're going to see some powerful displays of God radically impacting culture in and through two vessels. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask that you turn your attention to Acts chapter 3. We're starting verse 1, where the text says this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, that is the ninth hour. And so who we're introduced to is Peter and John. We know Peter, uh, the preacher of Pentecost. He's now making his way to the temple with John. They began as disciples early in Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. They were called to follow. They became disciples, that is the taught ones. And by the opening of Acts, they are now called apostles. They are now the sent ones. Okay, we also know that in that apostleship, they have power. They have an authority in their office as apostles. In fact, last week we saw in verse 43 of chapter 2, it says that awe fell upon all of the people. Why? Well, because many wonders and signs were being done through who? The apostles. Who were the signs and miracles being done through? I'm not getting a whole lot of convincing responses here. There's, there's a dude back there. He's like the apostles. You all agree with that? Who were the signs being done through? The apostles. This is important. Why, why were the miracles and signs being done through the apostles? What was it confirming? That their message is true. It says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. These signs and miracles confirm the fact that they were in the office, the appointed office of apostle and shepherds of the early church. Just as much as the signs, miracles, and wonders that were being done through Christ testified to his lordship. And we saw that early on in chapter 2 of Acts. And so these two apostles make their way to the temple in the, in the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the Jews would gather at the temple twice a day for prayer and for sacrifices. And so for some of us, this may seem odd that the apostles are still going into the temple to worship God, and we're like, well, why would they go to the temple? Because they're Jewish believers. They had received their Messiah. They were the true worshipers in the temple. They didn't need to go in there for sacrifices. They knew Jesus had already been sacrificed for their sins and had risen, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, just as Stephen testified today. Jesus is the true Lamb of God. But why would they go to the temple? Because they're worshiping God. Jesus wasn't just tacked on to Judaism. He is the fulfillment, the promise, the Messiah. 
And so these men enter into the temple that is built in glory of Messiah and God the Father, and they know the Messiah. They're not waiting on their Messiah. Full of the Holy Spirit, they walk in. And it just so happens, I love it just so happens. Don't you love that it just so happens in your life? That there's going to be a person that is placed in their path who is in need, and they're going to have the ability to meet that need. And I find these moments fascinating in my own life, and I pray you do in yours, that there are times when God has so superintended your steps that you literally burned your toast, could not find your keys, could not find your cup, your favorite cup, your travel cup, the travel mug that you love. You got at the truck stop, and you just like love that cup, and you could not find it, so you searched your house, and, you, and it just so happens that all of that coincided to this exact moment when you ran into this person in need. And you're like, God superintended a burnt toast, lost keys, and I couldn't find my mug just so I could be in the place and time that this person was at. And when we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and when we're walking, we're available, you'll be amazed what God can and will do in and through you. So look at next verse, verse 2. It says, and a man, lame from birth, uh, lame, that doesn't mean he was lame in the contemporary vernacular. It means he was, he was crippled in his feet. I wanted to make sure you all caught that. The Bible's not calling this guy lame. Anyway, a, a man lame from birth was being carried. So what do we know about this guy? What's that? He can't walk. How long has he been this way? Since birth. That's significant. In fact, by the time we get to Acts 4, we're going to see that this man has been in this condition 40 plus years. Okay, so he cannot walk. He's being carried. Okay, it says, in fact, whom they laid. Who's they? Those who carried him. And it's probably people who are profiting off this. Okay, so it's either family member or quote-unquote friends. He's probably like an employee. They carry him there to lay him at the gate to beg alms. It's his way and his source of income. In fact, it says here, they took him to the temple, uh, and they laid him in front of the beautiful gate. It's cruel irony, actually. That gate, we're not quite sure which gate. There's an outer gate. There was an outer gate at the temple where the, the outer world was, and then you'd enter into the court of the Gentiles, and then from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women, then you'd enter into the inner court, so there were three gates. And it's, it's argued that the beautiful gate was probably the main gate. Like this big, beautiful gate, and here's this humble, lowly person being laid. And, and at that point in time in, in his culture, he was anything but beautiful. You know, as I think about this particular guy who's been crippled for over 40 years, and it affected him from his birth, every, every single aspect of his life was impacted by his infirmity. And, and in fact, I would go so far as to say that, in, in fact, his identity was his infirmity. That's how his identity was informed. And that may be for some of us here. Like, you look at the ailment of your life, or you look at some aspect of your life, and that's what defines you. But this guy's going to come to understand that his, he's more significant than his infirmity. In fact, he's significant because God loves him. And God takes notice of him. And for all eternity, he is now captured in the Scripture. And what made this guy so significant is in his culture, he was absolutely insignificant. Yet, even the scripture bends its knee to this guy, which I find fascinating. When I think of his infirmity, I think how it defined every aspect of his life. It defined his relationships. He was always dependent on somebody else. He literally could not go anywhere without somebody helping him. His mobility was dependent upon others. He was ceremonially unclean. We may not know this, but in this culture, somebody who had this type of ailment was considered unclean. And so if anybody ever touched him, everybody who carried them, carried him became unclean too for a period of time. Can you imagine living your life just being a burden to everybody else and making everybody else unclean? 
It's a rough existence. Uh, I was thinking about this. How about his, his worth? How would he define his worth? Probably by his infirmity. He constantly took the form of a beggar. Could you imagine living your life just constantly begging? And his worth was based upon how much he could bring home. He was literally being used by people. They carried him so they could profit from him. Can you imagine living your whole life? Your only worth is how people can use you for their own benefit? His infirmity defined his relationship with God. He was always on the outside looking in. He couldn't go into the temple because of his infirmity. And in his culture, this is crazy, in his culture, in this first century mindset of Judaism, it was assumed that if somebody had that type of disability, somebody had sinned. It was either him or it was his parents. Could you imagine the guilt he carried around? Thinking he had somehow messed it up so bad in the womb? What must I have done in the womb? No, I mean, people looked at him, it was like either he sinned or his parents sinned. And we're going to see that same discussion later in Acts where someone's going to go, well, who sinned in this issue? And he's seen as a sinner, or his parents are. And so he's carrying this guilt and this shame with him. He's totally isolated. Everybody knew him, but nobody knew his name. He was known as the sinner, or as the cripple, or as the beggar. Totally insignificant. It's significant in the eyes of God. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you feel like you just do not have any significance at all. And you're just this little cog in this big wheel called life. He was closer to the dirt than the dogs. Every day this man's laid at this gate called beautiful. And I, I see this helpless man. And you know what? Nobody saw what God saw in this guy. If we walked into church today and this guy was laid at a gate called Firewheel out there and he was begging alms, we would probably go by. I mean, we'd see him, and I hope that we would, like, stop to help. But in this day and age, we'd probably walk by this guy and thought, he didn't really matter. Again, the irony, the cruel irony, he's laid at this gate called Beautiful. He's anything but beautiful, broken, messy, ugly, needy, cursed. Yes, cursed is how he was seen. Beautiful, absolutely not. I love how God sees so much differently than we do. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And so at this moment, he's seeing these two guys walk up, and he's like, okay, so I can hopefully get some money. Head down, hand out, asking for alms. And as I thought about this, I was like, these apostles have so much more to give. But all he knows to do is ask for silver and gold. And I I thought about that. I was like, sometimes in our Christian life, we ask for things, and God's got something so much greater to give us. And we're sitting there just asking for little trinkets, and God's like, I've got a treasure to give you. He had no idea what these men possessed to actually give him. In verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. This tells me this, this person did not have his eye, he was not making eye contact. He has to literally be told to make eye contact with Peter and with John. And you know what he sees in their eyes? I guarantee it. Eyes of compassion. Eyes that said, we actually are here to do something for you. We're not going to use you to pacify our guilty conscience. 
We're not going to take this opportunity to antagonize you or again point out your helpless state. Man, I have some compassion that said, I want to help you. He re- you know, as I thought about this guy, I was thinking, he would have been pretty happy if he got a couple of gold coins. He probably would have got, gone home that day and been like, man, that was a great payday. He had no idea what he's about to receive. This is incredible. Verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he's like, all right, I'm going to get some, at least some gold. Okay, but it's weird. They're not digging in their pockets. There's no jingling of change, no crumpling of paper. They're just staring at him. But their eyes, like full of fire and faith and compassion. Peter said to him, I have no gold and silver. What do you think that guy's thinking at that moment? Ah, thanks guys. I appreciate the conversation. No, I have no silver and gold. Peter could not give the man what he didn't possess. He could only give him what he possessed. And before I say the next the rest part of this verse, I want to say it this way. We get so focused on the trinkets of this earth, the silver and gold, we don't realize that in and by a name, we literally have access to the treasure trove of heaven. And we get so caught up in this idea, if I'm going to do anything good in this world, I'm going to need silver and gold. Like trinkets, little kids' toys. When we have by name, and the power of this name, literally access to the treasure of heaven. I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Give what you have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. that's significant? I can't give you what I don't have, but what I do have, there is power in the name of Jesus. All he had was the name. If you've ever had the privilege of going to like a nightclub or whatever, you try to access it, but you're not on the list. No amount of money, man. That door, that guy at the door, he's not letting you in. But you got a name, the door swings wide. He's like, I don't have any silver and gold. But by a name, let the door of healing swing wide. So you don't crawl through, you walk through. The apostles, full of power in the presence of the Holy Spirit, walking in their anointing in office as apostles, commanded the man to rise and walk. Now, I made this point last week, and I want to make it again. Because sometimes when we look at a passage like this, the ultimate focus becomes the physical healing. And I don't know about you, but there's been times where I've read the scripture, and I'm like, wow, they're just commanding people to be healed. I mean, can we do that same thing today? In fact, there are people who will tell you that they are faith healers that they are in the apostolic ministry and they're able to tell people to get up and walk. And so the question is, and there's a lot of confusion, what is the focus of this particular passage? And I'll tell you, we get focused on the physical healing because it's hard to have an infirmity. And it would be great to have every single one of our physical ailments cured. But you know what? If every single one of our physical ailments was always cured, you know what this would be? This would be heaven! The raising of Lazarus. When Jesus taught that he is the resurrection and the life, that is significant. But you know what? Lazarus died. 
He had to do it twice. He was like, oh man, this again? <sighs> Fine, get the barrel closed. Please don't wake me up again. It was so nice. The woman with the flow of blood, for, for 12 years she suffered. She was cured. But you know, she probably died from another ailment. I mean, we know she died. The physical body breaks down. The, the focus of this passage, yes, we see the physical healing, but we start to think that's the most significant. No, the most significant was this man just received a new identity, and it's through the name of Jesus. And I will argue that he received Christ, and he received a whole different trajectory for his eternity. You want to talk about true healing, talk about somebody's eternal destiny being changed from death to life. That's miraculous. But the reason I bring this up is because there are ministries today and ministers dedicated to physical healing and they promise miracles. They claim that they have the anointing and power to heal. And they tell people to physically rise up. And you know what? I've seen the outtakes. I've seen those who are in a wheelchair come in and they are physically, they are disabled and they cannot walk. And this minister tells them to stand up and walk. And you know what? I've seen the outtakes where they fall to the floor. And I've seen the people that go in and they're suffering with cancer or some other degenerative disease and some faith healer says, by the name of Jesus, I command that sickness to leave you. You are healed. And that person dies three weeks later because of that sickness. And you know what people start to think? That Jesus has no power. You know, you want to know the truth? That person, that minister, that person that says they're walking, and that they have no power. The name of Jesus is power. And by his name we are healed. And that is eternally healed. And what really drives me crazy is that there are ministers out there praying on people in their most desperate and vulnerable places. You know what they say? They say, rise up and walk so I can get some gold and silver. The specific power and anointing that we're seeing here was specific to the apostles. In fact, I quote here from Dr. Constable. It says this, as apostles, they had the power and authority to perform signs and miracles. Is that me right there? Should I use a handheld? We're good. The authority to perform signs and miracles, they simply told the man to stand. This is crazy power. This does not mean there is no power, though, as believers. Because by prayer, the Bible tells us to pray by faith. The Bible says to anoint with oil and pray. I have seen people healed. I've seen people healed of cancer through prayer. I've seen marriages restored. I've seen people set free from bondage. And I've seen people go from death to life through prayer. There is power in the name of Jesus. But on this particular day, the guy was physically healed. It's incredible. In fact, he's commanded to rise. This is no recommendation. He does, Peter does not go, hey, if you want to get up, go ahead and rise. No, he commands him. And I don't see any level of faith in this particular guy other than he has the faith to have his hand out asking for alms, and now he's about to walk. Sometimes with the Lord, all we do is need to be needy, seeking. It says in the next verse, verse 7, he took him by the right hand. This may have been the first time this man in 40 plus years has received a handshake. He raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. I love it. The author of this book, Luke, is a physician, so this is semi-clinical in nature. I'm going to quote here from the New Illustrated Bible Commentary because it just it brings so much color to this, this verse. Luke, a physician by profession, 
describe what took place. Listen to this. Instantly, strength was given to the portions of the body that needed it. Blood supply was increased to the muscle. The brain sent signals to the nerve endings of the ankles and feet. The hardened fluid between the joints was softened, and the atrophied muscles and ligaments regained flexibility. The feet suddenly could bear the man's weight. And he's laying there, and all of a sudden, this superhighway of the nervous system sending signals. He's wiggling his toes. He's getting signals from his toes to his brain, down his brain to his toes. And he's like, I can walk. Muscles that did not exist are there. And, and look what it says. It says, and leaping up, huh, he began to walk. And I'm visioning Bambi right now. You know Bambi? Like, just, he's like, you guys know, you tell me you know Bambi. Like, right when Bambi's born? It's going to take some of y'all a moment. You're like, Bambi. Oh, yeah. But he, he, it's not that he's learning how to walk again. He's learning how to walk. 40 plus years, he's just like, oh, what is I mean, just imagine, he's, he's laying down on the ground. Can you imagine how his worldview changed? He's like down here his whole life, and all of a sudden he's like, a whole new world. No, he probably didn't do that, but. And then, this is, this is so great, he entered the temple. First time in his life. And it says he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. You will find no one more joyous than a person who has received Christ as their Savior and been eternally healed. They are joyous. Restored. First time he's in the temple. And he's just praising the Lord. And you know what it is? It happens. We get all crotchety in our Christian faith. We get all old. Can't believe those young Christians just all excited and yelling and screaming. What happened to you? Crotchety Christian? When did you stop being excited by the fact that you were saved by grace through faith? When did we ever start looking down on the passion of a new believer and someone filled for the first time with the Holy Spirit of God, instead of throwing water on it, we should warm our hands by it, build our own faith, and give us God, the joy of our salvation. Amen? What do you think the reaction was in the temple at this moment? Ah, it's just another day. This guy comes in, he's walking, he's leaping, he's praising God, and everybody goes, hey, isn't that that guy? The sinner guy, the crippled guy, the guy that's always out there, the beggar. All the people saw him walking and praising God. You want to talk about having your brain blown? I mean, there was brain matter everywhere. I saw that guy. I just gave him some money. He's walking? And recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, they were filled with wonder. That word wonder means to be frozen in your tracks and amazed. It means their brain stopped working. They were like... And all of a sudden, this insignificant guy who mattered not at all is all of a sudden the center of attention. Wow. He comes in, he's praising, he's with Peter and John. Glowing man, praising, 
And all this crowd starts to gather around him. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of chapter 2, the first miracle that we have recorded from the early church when the, the Holy Spirit of God came upon them and they burst out into the streets, all 120 of them proclaiming the glory of God in all the languages of earth. And the crowd gathered amazed and confounded. And they asked one question. You all remember the question they asked? What does this mean? And all of a sudden now, there's this huge crowd gathered around Peter at, at the portico called, of Solomon's inside of the temple proper, and all of them are looking in and they're like, what does this mean? And Peter's about to say, there's power in the name of Jesus. And that is exactly where we're going to pick up next week as Peter takes opportunity to preach the second sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And where does the sermon take place, class? Outside. He said that in the temple, but outside, open air. There's something too clinical and too sterile about our faith if it only resides within these four walls. So let's talk about some applications. First, what, what seemed important to me to talk about, uh, our identity. You know, as I think about this, this particular man, uh, we, spent a guy, we met a guy who spent most of his life being identified by his infirmity. He was the beggar, the sinner, the cripple. And you know what? He probably learned early on to play his part. Just another insignificant member of culture. A burden, a waste of space, making everybody unclean. But by the powerful name of Jesus, this man's identity changed. Very often, our identity is informed more by our infirmities than our Jesus. Often in this life, our own identities are informed more by our infirmities than by our Jesus. And what I mean by that is I hear people say, oh, I'm just a wretched sinner. I'm just a failure. And there's this fear of, like, insignificance. That we really are just this little cog in a big old wheel, and we don't really matter. Here's the thing. As Christians, our Father in Heaven does not see us that way. And one of my great privileges as a pastor is I get to convince you and I get to show you, hopefully, a better view of how God views you. And how maybe even your view of yourself is flawed. And that maybe you start to see yourself the way God sees you as he describes you, because in, in the Bible it says you are a saint. In Christ you are a saint. You are a hagias, a holy saint. You need to be canonized in the Catholic Church to be a saint. Those aren't saints. You're saints. I mean, they, I'm sure they were saints, but I'm saying you are saints too. You're a holy saint right where you sit. In fact, the Bible describes you as a masterpiece, an awesome wonder. You are God's poiema, and that means it's poetry. <laughs> Created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has set in place beforehand for his purpose and for his pleasure and for, gosh, it's going to bring you joy to walk in that. And so, family, I want you to hear this. When we identify with our trash, we spend our days living in the dump. If that's all we identify with is, is the trash within us, we're going to spend our entire day and our days in the dump. But you know what? When we identify with the treasure that is in us, that is Jesus that is within us, you know where we spend our day? We spend our day as king's kids. Not in rags, but in robes. 
Not in filth, but in holiness. Not in the dumpster, in his throne room that we have access to through Christ to boldly approach. Wouldn't it, okay, wouldn't you have thought this is weird if the guy at the end of the day, Peter preaches, they had a potluck, they call it, I don't know, the healing potluck, and um, they're all hanging out, and the guy goes, oh, this has been an incredible day, and he goes back up to those who carried him and goes, hey, can you guys carry me home? Dude, why would we carry you home? That's who I am, isn't it? No. That's not who you are. Wouldn't it be strange if the next day everybody came to the temple and there he is laying at the, t- the gate, just hand out? What are you doing here? This isn't who you are. And so as I was thinking about that, some of us are living lives that we've literally been saved from. Rise up and walk. Don't live a life you've been saved from. It is time to rise up and walk. Secondly, and I'll end here, there is power in the name of Jesus. I hope you leave with this. There is power in the name of Jesus. If all you have is the name of Jesus, you have the greatest treasure on earth. If you have by faith the name of Jesus, you have the greatest treasure of earth. Parents, grandparents, sometimes we feel like, oh, I just cannot give my kids the best tech or the best toys. Man. But you know what? If you give them Jesus, you are giving them the greatest treasure on earth. Husbands, wives, maybe you're feeling like, gosh, if we could just have this bigger house, we just make it. You know what? If you have the name of Jesus and he's the center of your marriage, You have the greatest treasure on earth. If that's all you have is the name of Jesus, you possess, by faith, the greatest treasure on earth. And you know that's why his name is such a threat. It's interesting in our culture we can talk about God. Sure, talk about God. I'll often get asked to pray at places. Just make, uh, could you just pray to God? Because it's a whole Jesus thing that messes it on up, doesn't it? And you know why? Because there's power in his name. Just saying his name is powerful. Because here's why. There is no name given under heaven that you can call on to be saved other than Jesus. There's so much power in the name of Jesus that every single person on planet earth who calls out on him for salvation will be saved. Now the opposite of that is is equally true. All who refuse to call out on him will not be saved. Family, the name of Allah cannot save you. The false teaching of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses cannot save you. New age religion that tells you to find your inner God, I look within and it's gross, cannot save you. There is no hope in reincarnation. You're not going to come back as someone or something else. God created you. He knit you. He formed you in your mother's womb. You have one life to live. And you have one eternal destiny. It is either life or death. And the only one who makes the difference in the trajectory of your eternity is Jesus. He is the Lord. And there is power in his name. Jesus Christ 
came to earth, died for our sins. That means he took our trash to the cross. He was buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. In fact, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and following tells us this, Therefore God has highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord all to the glory of God the Father. And family, there is power in his name. There's power in his name to save you and set you free and break chains. Swing wide the gate. There is power in